I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. Today's show is sponsored by Coinbase Prime, a leading prime brokerage for digital assets. While Coinbase is widely known for its retail business, Coinbase also provides the bridge to the digital asset world for institutional investors, high net worth individuals, financial institutions, and corporate investors. Through their professional trading platform, deep and diversified liquidity, execution expertise, and Coinbase custody, one of the largest and most trusted digital asset custodians, Coinbase Prime is a solution for institutions looking to enter the digital asset markets. For more information, visit prime.coinbase.com. This is David, and this is your new episode of Baselayer, and it's going to be a really good one. I have Andrew Peel with me today, the head of digital asset markets at Morgan Stanley. Andrew, how are you? Doing well, thanks, David. How about yourself? Doing well. 2021 is hopefully going to bring us a better year. The aliens have not come down, although we had, obviously, some fun over here in the States a few weeks ago, and so we're hoping that all things calm down a little bit and we can get back to the normal course. Um so this is going to be really interesting, as I mentioned, because as I alluded to in Andrew's title, the head of digital asset markets at Morgan Stanley. And so for many of us that are listening, the family offices, the institutional investors, they might be surprised about your title. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Bitcoin. We're going to talk about beyond Bitcoin and a lot of other different things. But what we like to do on the show to give a backdrop is basically go over a little bit before you were at Morgan Stanley. So I know you were at Credit Suisse prior, and you were an early advocate of digital assets. What really brought you into this new paradigm of digital assets, and what inspired you? Yeah, thanks, David. And firstly, thank you, by the way, for the invite. Big fan of the podcast. I've listened to many of your episodes over the years and learned a lot from them myself. Very kind. Thank you. And uh, I know you have your brief disclaimer at the start, which plays... Uh, to say the views are your own and not, and not necessarily those of ARCA. And I'd just yep. like to just briefly echo those uh, that disclaimer and mention that anything we discussed today is really my own views and not necessarily those at Morgan Stanley. Mm-hmm. So that part out of the way. Um, now, look, Bitcoin, I think, and digital assets certainly was, was really a, a process for me. Um, studied both technology and finance and grew up with a computer in my bedroom and always had, you know, passion for business. So I guess the combination of the technology and the business was something that was, that was definitely of interest and specifically around finance. I think I first read about Bitcoin back in 2011, uh, Wired Magazine article, and the topic was linked to a completely new anonymous marketplace. And I just found this concept of having a kind of digital cash linked to an online marketplace, something completely intellectually fascinating, uh, the way that a use of a new technology could enable this, this new type of business. I spent some time researching it, although probably 
not long enough researching it, looking back. Um, and it was trading around six to seven dollars back then. It sounded interesting and it was fascinating, but I quickly kind of realized how difficult it was actually to to buy Bitcoin and to go through some of these kind of little known sites, which I think back then was even Liberty Reserve and some site in Japan called Mt. Gox. So we all we all kind of know what happened happened after that period in yep. time. But I think just that initial thinking about it always had the topic in the back of my mind. And then moving forward a couple of years, I was running a trading book uh, at Credit Suisse on structured products. So my job was to quote, make markets and risk manage a large number of these exotic type of financial instruments with like 3,000 different underlyings, all of these different parameters which used to affect the prices. So I really needed to stay close to the market, monitor all the various different parameters that could affect the prices of these products. And I set up a large monitor on Bloomberg at the time and tried to capture all this data and keep an, keep an eye on all this data. And one of the sources of data that I was pulling into the terminal was, was Twitter feeds and some of the emerging kind of financial blogs like Zero Hedge back in the day. So I'm not sure if you're aware of that. It's, it's quite libertarian left utr symbol the function if i'm not mistaken on the bloomberg terminal exactly exactly and i think it was it was really 2013 which bitcoin again started appearing more frequently on some of the on some of the twitter feeds and it was during the cyprus financial crisis mm -hmm. when you saw bitcoin apps suddenly jump into the top of the app store and the and for me again it was this concept of a new type of technology being used for people to help in crisis situations such as banks being closed for weeks and cash is, mm -hmm. cash just not being available. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think it's also a consensus that those that are in this world now initially saw it in its early days and said, nah, it's, I, I can't do that. It, it, it looks like it's not even going to last another, another year or so. Everyone universally across the board has kind of said that when they first saw it, they kind of dismissed it, but then they said, well, wait a second, maybe I should do a little bit more work on it. Or they saw it again a year or two later and they said, wow, it's still here. And I gotta, I gotta really look into this now. So that's a universal, I think that's a universal trend and a narrative out there amongst those that have been in this for a little while, but I want to shift. So as I said, again, to be on the onset, you are at Morgan Stanley. This is a world-renowned institution, a tier one, obviously, and your role is head of digital asset markets. For those that are listening, this, again, is going to be very exciting to them because, again, they may not know that there is such a role that exists. So what is your role there? What do you do? Yeah, so I report into sales and trading in the institutional securities department. I was brought in, actually, in 2018, Initial mandate was to oversee the launch of a, a swap-based product linked to CME and CBOE futures on Bitcoin. Um, discussed the, the view that Bitcoin and crypto specifically would become more of a institutional asset class. And I discussed those kind of expectations uh, for how this asset class might evolve just at the end of the kind of retail frenzy in 2017. And... Fortunately for me at the time, the, the senior management of Morgan Stanley had some vision that this space, um, not just Bitcoin, but 
the broader digital asset marketplace could become a topic which evolves to be something which we need a, needed to have some expertise in at some stage in the future. And that's that's how the role evolved. So mm -hmm. initially Bitcoin swaps, although we didn't actually go live with this product at the time, mm -hmm. I was involved closely with a number of client-based discussions. You know, we've one of our core values is put client first to make sure we responding to to client interests and client incomings. Mm -hmm. So obviously this year we've seen, well certainly last year in the previous year, we've seen significant interest from more traditional financial players. So to be able to just speak on yep. the topic to those to those institutions is something that's definitely relevant. Let's dig in there a little bit because I've spoken to other friends at tier ones out there that obviously in many ways are competition. Um, but they are very notable world-renowned multinational corporations as well, too. And they are also saying that the reverse inquiry into Bitcoin in this asset class is a at a level that they have never seen before in its history, that it is on a daily basis. Could you, not without obviously giving away much, but would you say it's the the demand or the interest is at a level that you have not seen prior? I think it's it's definitely correlated with with spot price and, and market activity in general. Mm. Like like most financial asset classes, when there's significant moves, then headlines mm -hmm. headlines are made and of course that triggers people's interest. Yep. Um so I definitely think interest and um Focus is a function of of the price action. Mm -hmm. Don't think it's just because of the price action, because obviously there's a lot more than just the price action. But in general, I think that's the case. Right. So that leads me into my following here. So Morgan Stanley Investment Management's chief global strategist and head of emerging markets, Ruchir Sharma, published an opinion piece in the Financial Times at the end of 2020. He explained how Bitcoin is making progress towards replacing the U.S. dollar and becoming the world's reserve currency. Hard stop. Do you believe, or what do you believe, can it be attributed to Bitcoin becoming recognized as an inflation hedge and potential reserve currency, whereas you know, just a few years ago, institutional investors deflected from it? They you know, called it a scam, or they agreed that it was rat poison squared, like... Warren Buffett called it. What do you, you know, what do you think has attributed has been the attribution to this kind of level of serious interest now that we've seen? Yeah, I think Russia's piece was definitely interesting and certainly got a lot of attention. It's it's a slightly different department that I'm involved in, so their investment management arm like, uh, commenting in terms of of their views, which is also separate and Chinese walls existing between the kind mm -hmm. of securities division. But it also related to the fact that throughout 2020, we really saw a large evolution of the space in terms of significant players, macro legends, if you will, obviously coming out to publicly disclose, disclose their support for Bitcoin mm -hmm. as an inflation hedge. And when we look back to when Paul Tudor Jones published an mm -hmm. interesting article earlier in the year, we just saw exponential growth from then Stan Druckenmiller, Bill Miller, Alan Howard. Yep. These, these, these are legends in the financial industry. And of course, 
if they come out to comment on a new topic, I think it inspires people that have are inspired by those types of uh, macro legends to mm -hmm. to look into it, to see it as a potential topic to read into and start to explore. Right. And, and in terms of you know how how this becomes and it potentially becomes an inflation hedge. So you've seen the, the narrative move to this store of value or, or gold 2.0, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think from a logistics perspective, in March, we saw large dislocations in, in gold due to obviously the, the coronavirus and the various different delivery rules mm -hmm. um, not being able to be fulfilled. So CME were pushing to change delivery rules, and we saw quite large dislocations and spreads between New York and London due mm -hmm. to difficulties of physical gold delivery. Uh, Bitcoin fees, of course, could become more expensive, and we've, we've seen that through periods of real volatility or activity on the Bitcoin blockchain. Right. But the settlement mechanism remained functional, even though the market sustained a large 50% drawdown in March. So in some ways, it has some benefits over that physical delivery aspect of gold. Right. And so I'm curious, you alluded to in, in kind of your career and kind of what you do that you also look at underlying and correlation, you know, specific to the assets that you're covering. And so I don't know if you can speak to this because correlation seems to keep coming up and up and up. You know, obviously, as you know, you know, as well as anyone that's been in this space long enough. People say that it's correlated to gold. People say that it's correlated to U.S. equities. People say that it's not correlated to gold and U.S. equities. And as you have obviously seen, there are periods where it goes in correlation and there are periods where it actually goes in reverse. And so in terms of anything that you typically would look at in terms of correlation matrices regarding Bitcoin or other digital assets, is there anything that you kind of look at on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so I have a I have a chart on my on my Bloomberg still of Bitcoin versus the S and P five hundred mm. on a rolling uh, correlation basis on an hourly correlation basis, and uh, and and Bitcoin versus gold, both of those actually, um, and then as well look at the the DXY the dollar, see mm. how this is related to the current to current spot price, and in addition to that, more frequently looking at the the flows into the various larger uh, exchange traded or uh, publicly tradable private closed funds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And so we've spent a little bit of time on Bitcoin. You have also recently discussed going beyond Bitcoin. You recently discussed specifically DeFi, decentralized finance. would love to hear what you are thinking, you and your colleagues, about um you know the space as it exploded obviously as we've talked about before multiple times on the show you know roughly 800 million dollars in total value locked and now well in exceeding of over 19 billion dollars is probably not over 20 billion dollars as i'm talking right now and so we've seen this whole world of reimagining of lending of borrowing of collateralization take place you know some people say it is a grand experiment that played out in 2020 and we're starting to see that experiment become more of a reality would love to hear kind of what you and your colleagues are thinking about it internally, kind of what you are excited about, if you can even say that about what's happening in this space. Okay, just briefly going back, because I didn't manage to explain really exactly what I'm also focused on in, at Morgan Stanley. Um, since 2018, there's been a large 
focus of traditional financial infrastructure players on mm-hmm. on the evolution of financial market infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So I've been involved with some of the larger European exchange initiatives, which are looking to use uh, DLT, smart contracts, automated processing of certain uh, lifecycle events for products, uh, atomic settlement, the ability to implement some of the developing crypto world functionality into traditional financial infrastructure. Hmm. So that, that part fascinates me. Um, again, going back to the kind of application of this new technology for, for finance, for, for traditional finance, and thinking about how structured products business, all these retail structured products, which are very popular in, in Europe, just have these huge amounts of data required systems required to reconcile with each other, people required to check the various different systems, copying of data and um, collaboration between multiple departments and multiple systems. And they're very process intensive. And these these platforms, to me, lend themselves the most to automation. So just looking at the DeFi world, I I remember trading on personally on Ether Delta just to check out how this worked in in 2017. I don't know if you saw Ether Delta. Yes. But it, <laughs> yes. In, yeah, exactly. So these these type of pre-listing ICO tokens um, where you'd been part of a maybe a capital raise or an ICO would be launching, and then before they even made it to the likes of Binance or some of the other crypto exchanges, you would see that they would be trading already on this on this Ether Delta. And it was clunky and it was difficult to use and there was no real order book and it was extremely complicated, not user-friendly, but then again found this revolutionary that you could be sat wherever you were in the world with a laptop and a ledger device connected to a web browser and be able to trade these digital assets with somebody else somewhere in another part of the world with a similar kind of setup that you didn't have to know and you didn't have to trust, but you were able to trade with directly. And to me, that was fascinating, revolutionary, kind of thinking how this could evolve. Mm -hmm. And, you know, moving forward like three years, now, as you mentioned, we've grown to like, over 25 billion now of the value locked in DeFi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the growth has been amazing. So 25x in terms of value locked in just over a year. Um, it's still small. It's still like a fraction of some of the larger companies out there. But I totally agree that the growth is phenomenal. And what I noticed recently, kind of digging into it again and checking out some of the new services, the functionality evolved massively since then. Um, the you know the user interface, the the way that the MetaMask plugin on on Chrome will connect to, or whichever browser you choose, will connect to some of these Web 3.0 platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, the user interface is becoming far far more user friendly. So it just opens this this functionality in this market to such a much broader group of people. Right. It, it's kind of mind blowing to see this the innovation and the pace of the development and just. Frankly, it's it's hard to keep up with with a full time job. Of course, you know to to keep an eye on this in the spare time is 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 takes up a lot of your a lot of your spare time. Um, but you know through this through this 
energy and through this growth to me comes some form of innovation that will evolve to be something that's more relevant and even larger for traditional financial financial world. Love it. That's great. And so one of the last things I want to talk about, we're going to talk about corporates and then kind of your, you know, what you're thinking about 2021. So corporates, as you know, have become a player within digital assets. Um, multinational corporations around the world, such as MicroStrategy, have started to reallocate assets in their treasury to Bitcoin last year. What do you think about that as a continuing trend into 2021? Fascinating, again, use case. Um, what, to me, was relevant work for this, uh, specifically around MicroStrategy, is one, the price performance versus Bitcoin uh, of the actual asset of the underlying was actually 100% above uh, the, the Bitcoin performance. So it performed around 380% since announcing the, the purchase versus Bitcoin performing 280%. To me, there's some additional outperformance there due to some of the commentary around the future of the vision for the company. It's not simply just a play on the Bitcoin on the balance sheet. Um, not only that, but of course, Michael Saylor publicly publishing this this concept and this guide on 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 why he did this why he bought bitcoin and how to do this for other corporates across so many media channels it just it, to me it wouldn't surprise me if he's encouraging others to do this one because of the price performance and the relevance of the company now i think very few people probably even heard of the equity or the stock before this uh move to bitcoin and obviously now it's it's across most media outlets but also because of the fact that he's published very detailed way to actually do this. So yeah, I don't think it's the last. Uh, and I think he has certainly opened the floodgates for others to actually enter the space. I agree. And uh, I think we'll probably be hearing more about that over the course of the next few weeks. You know, we've, there's been some evidence of some very large buying and we'll see if eventually in the next month or two, someone else comes out with a big, Twitter response blog and says we followed the micro strategy roadmap and uh, we'll see if that comes to fruition for 2021. Anything that you were thinking about as any kind of big trends or narratives? I think it's a continuation of the momentum we've seen towards the end of last year uh, and the start of this year. Even I mean, yes, there's there's a lot of excitement in in the market currently. Um, there's certainly some frothy valuations out there, but I think the We've crossed the lexicon uh, recently in terms of this becoming a serious asset class to pay attention to. Uh, Ethereum futures launch, I believe, first week of Feb, maybe the second week of February. Yep. Um, we just pushed a new all-time high in Ethereum today. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's clearly something that's still in a lot of focus, even as as kind of Bitcoin slows down and pauses after the after the run to forty thousand. I see. I see Ethereum uh, use cases and more DeFi uh, development continuing throughout 2021. I really hope the the market finds a way, or or we as we find a way to be able to access this space without. When I say we, I'm, when I say we, I'm thinking about the the broader crypto community rather than Morgan Stanley uh, finding a way that. It's possible to interact with some of these really interesting protocols with much lower gas fees. Because mm -hmm. ironically, to me, uh, 
the concept of crypto digital assets, the ability to scale this technology, reach the unbanked and, and to be able to uh, build a global marketplace is, is somewhat limited when, when the price of Ethereum gas fees is, is, is restrictive. You have to be playing with tens of thousands to even be able to access some of these protocols efficiently. Agreed. Well, I will say, I know you're quite a busy person over there. Uh, thank you for coming on, Andrew. This was Andrew Peel, at the head of digital asset markets at Morgan Stanley. Again, enlightening. And I think so many people out there who listen to the show are going to be so happily surprised that someone like you who understands these markets, understands the technology, is there shepherding uh, the firm there uh, along the road. Uh, as we continue to see more adoption and this evolution. Andrew, thank you so much for being on. Hopefully we can have you on again in a few months, catch up, see how everything's trending on your side, and we'll keep tabs with you. It would be my pleasure, David. Thank you again for the invite and for all your work in the space. Thank you. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.